The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Lord, teach us to pray. The request from Jesus' disciples not only reveals their personal desire, but offers a lasting impression of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus' life, the perfect life, was a praying life. The intimacy and understanding between Jesus and the Father is available to every person who desires to know. And Daniel said weeks ago, that we're going to try to say this statement every week, but prayer is literally communication with God for those who need him. And we find ourselves a couple months in our sermon series talking to God, a history of prayer, and we've been walking mostly chronologically through the stories of the Bible, setting into places where we see characters communicating with God, Not only how they're talking to God, but also how God responds to them. And in order to bring us to where we find ourselves in our journey this morning, I started to think about currently where we are at in our world. We are coming to a more open world, and that's okay to be excited about. The pandemic has died down a little bit. We look around and we're seeing, especially in this room, that less and less people are wearing masks. We go to Fred Meyer or the grocery store and we start to see more people walking in the aisleways. We see on the beaches and in the lakes around here that they are littered with people hanging out and celebrating because it's summertime. We've started to venture out more as people. And events are popping up left and right. You'd only have to visit the events section of Facebook or even your newspapers to know that things are starting to happen, that concerts are starting to be booked, celebrations are being held, and get-togethers at local establishments and at people's homes are starting to happen more regularly. We like to celebrate, right? What I want you to imagine this morning is that we're getting ready for the biggest house party that has ever happened. However, like any good party, there's a lot that must take place in order for this party to be the talk of our community. We have to make sure that we have enough space. We have to make sure that we have adequate parking. We have to have the right amount of food, the best entertainment the best quality beverages, the right party decorations, and sometimes party favors. We even have a guest of honor. There is a person that we have invited, and it is our hope that that person would not only receive the invitation, but come and join us. This person is actually the life of the party. The one that we have all been waiting for, and it's been quite the buildup, waiting for that arrival. 
We've looked up to this person because people talk about him constantly and have for the ages. And we have this real possibility now that he is going to come and be and dwell with us. And we as a people are going to do everything possible to ensure that our guest comes and makes themselves at home. And similar is the story that we find ourselves in this morning. We're about to enter into the biggest house party that has ever happened. And I chose to call it a house party because I see the celebration and I'm really excited to talk about that. But we find ourselves in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7. And if you were to drop in and just quickly skim it, you kind of see that there's a lot going on. God has always existed. He has no beginning and no end. From the beginning of time to our world today, God has always been with his people. However, from this story standpoint, God has been leading his people through a cloud. And we remember the stories of how God had led the people in a cloud and they followed him. And where the cloud rested was where the presence of God existed. And that there were certain people that could access God's presence in the cloud. Do you remember that? Moses met with him. Moses would leave the tent. Joshua was with him. But that was where the presence of God's glory dwelled, in that cloud. So what an intense feeling that, have, that must have been knowing that God existed where the cloud appeared and that to speak with God through the cloud was an honor and an absolute privilege. There was a king by the name of David that desired God to have his own home. He wanted God to have a place of rest and it was in his heart to see to it that a great and glorious house would be built and that God would finally dwell in presence among his people in his house. God told David that it was wonderful that it was in his heart to build him a house, but rather than David being the one to build the temple, it would be a son that would come from his line. This son and heir, a line that God had promised to David that he would always have a king on as long as that line continued to follow him in his laws and decrees. So as David was nearing death and his life on earth was coming to a close, David's son Solomon had become king. Solomon was the son who would finally build the house for God that David had originally wanted to build. The temple had been planned for quite some time, David being a good father, and seeing that Solomon was young and inexperienced in building, designed the house, and had given complete instructions for what it would look like. And if you guys want to know what that looks like, you only have to read through Second Chronicles 2 through 4. And you are going to see in great detail what it took to make this building possible. You're also going to see how great that undertaking was. Solomon had said, the house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. That's in the Bible. Solomon did not build the house by his own hand. Solomon had hired many skilled men for the construction. This house was constructed with gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood. It was so amazing that in today's world, 
God's house would literally put Hollywood to shame. There was no keeping up with these Joneses. God's house was an incredible fit for royalty. This was a massive house. It had an outer court with an altar for sacrifice. Along the outside, there were basins that the priests would be able to wash animal carcasses for offerings in. That doesn't sound very pleasant, but it was a really amazing thing, right? As well as a sea that the priests themselves washed in to keep in line with God's commands. Inside, there was a lave or a holy place. And in that place, it contained the golden altar of incense, golden table for the bread of the presence, and ten golden lampstands. Past the nave, you would enter into the inner sanctuary or most holy place. Or holies of holy, where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled between two giant golden cherubim. And when I thought of cherubim, I was thinking sweet little kids. But as I looked at the design, what I found was two almost like dog-looking creatures. They had like pharaoh-type like headgear and then big wings. And I was like, that's much more terrifying than children. Um, children can be terrifying people. I have four of them, I know from experience. <laughs> Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the law given to Moses on Sinai, written on two tablets. This house was more beautiful and elaborate than anything we have ever seen and anything we will ever see. And this was to be God's home as he dwelled among his people. So everything was finally prepared. The only thing that the Israelites needed now was for God to come and inhabit this place. But how would they get him to come? The question that I wanted to ask you this morning was what would make God want to dwell among his people? And the big idea that I want you to think about is an invitation that God will not refuse. But before we answer that question, I want to talk through some interesting facts because I want you guys to have facts to put in your back pocket. I love doing this with books of the Bible because I always learn something new when I'm studying through the, the intros and the histories and stuff like that. And I always think that having some of this stuff just makes the reading a little more fun and that we can walk through it together and just enjoy it a little more. But here's some factoids for you guys. You get to keep these, okay? So first and second Chronicles used to be one book. The book was first originally separated by the, sub, the Septuagint translators. And the Septuagint is a historical Greek form of the Hebrew Old Testament. The book of Chronicles was written by, they assume, Ezra. If you were to read these books together, you notice that there is a ton of genealogy which puts you to sleep. It puts me to sleep. I read all of 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles in preparation of this morning, and I can tell you that it was hard to get through 1 Chronicles. But what I can tell you is that after learning the history of why it was important, it made it that much more enjoyable because I could see where ends matched up. And the reason was is because Israel was coming out of exile, and they were reestablishing their relationship with God. And as they were doing that, they wondered where they were in position to how he felt about them. They were wondering if the God of the past still connected with them today. Does that make sense? So the chronicler was writing and saying, through all this genealogy, I want to show you how it's attached, how God still loves you, how God still cares for you, how God is still going to keep the covenants that he's made with your people. And that should overwhelm us with joy because it continues right through Jesus, through us. We see that. 
Um, so the book of Chronicles is seen as a complementary book to Samuel and Kings. One of the Chronicles' purposes and themes was for us to see David and Solomon without their downfalls. You will not see in Second Chronicles where David had the affair with Bathsheba, and you will not see where Solomon had many wives. It doesn't say it in there. It says that in Kings, right? And why that was set up and put that way was so that we would see them as the kind of leader that we were truly looking for, almost like a type of Jesus, right? Um, another thing we're supposed to see is kind of this idea that, that David and Solomon are almost like Moses and Joshua, right? Because Moses wanted to enter the promised land, but he never got to. David wanted to build the temple for God, but he never got to. Joshua was going to enter the promised land. He led the people and did that. Solomon led the people in the building of the temple. Isn't that incredible? So like, we don't see that by just reading it, but through studying, what I realized was that these were things that we were supposed to see. And while, lastly, we no longer have a physical temple today, we are the physical temple that we invite Jesus into as we have a relationship with God. So that's pretty incredible. So now that we have that, we're going to jump back to our story. And when it comes to an invitation and house parties and thinking of all that takes and everything that goes into that, the first point that I was going to make today is preparation. Because if we jump in immediately to 6.1, it actually says, and I don't want you to jump into 6.1, then, which makes you wonder why it started with the word then, because something was already in process right? The first chapter of sec the Second Chronicles 6.1. Something was already in process. And what had already taken place was that the preparation for the temple was now complete. And so Solomon was drawing everyone together. But I think to overlook preparation would be very, very sad on our part. Because have you ever heard how people say preparation is everything? <laughs> How much more excited are you when you go to someone's house or to someone's party and it's set up and it's got decorations and you know the purpose that you're there. You're just really pumped, right, in that moment. But if you go to someone's house and it's like this is somebody's birthday party and you get there, you see no streamers, no cake, nothing. I mean, you're probably going to, I mean, the first thing you're going to do is you're probably going to get in the car. You're going to talk to your spouse if you have a spouse. And you're going to say, that was some party, right? I mean, and while I don't want this to sound like an episode of a fixer-upper type show, I do want everyone to understand the weight of preparation that took place in building God's house. So why would he want to go there, right? Second Chronicles 2, 1 through 2. Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. He conscripted 70 thousand men as carriers and 80,000 as stonecutters in the hills and 3,600 as foremen over them. The word conscripted is just another word meaning enlisted. Solomon literally had over 150,000 people working on this project. It took seven years to complete. This means that the temple was really, really big and it required a ton of work. That's intentionality. So the people of Israel 
are intentionally pursuing God by making sure that the settings for the temple fit exactly what needed for him to come and be among his people. On top of this, Solomon had required the help of Hiram, king of Tyre, who was a loyal friend of his father David, and he sent him cedar. So Solomon was actually receiving different things for the construction of the temple, which means it took time, right? I'm just trying to point out preparation, intentionality. And as I was thinking of construction of this great house, something I thought of was when you ride down Sedgwick in Port Orchard, there's a housing complex that is going in, and it is quite large. I mean, it's pretty big. It's up on the hill, right? But if you drive by it, you will never at any time see 70,000 people wood cutting, nor 80,000 people stone cutting. And so I want to give you an idea. What our ideas and thoughts of big are, this is bigger, okay? This is amazing. This is massive. I want to kind of show you that difference. So the construction of the temple just shows us that Israel was just preparing this way. They were intentionally preparing for God to come and dwell in his house. Then I also thought of the meticulous way about how everything happened to construct the house. I thought about kind of how the poles that they carried the Ark of the Covenant on, which was the presence, the glory of God there, as they're carrying it in, they were so long that they had to sit outside the Holy of Holies from the inside, and you could see the poles from the nave in that inner room. And it was there the entire time of the temple. We know that doesn't exist anymore. But it just goes to show kind of how these things had to be done in order to honor God. So there was great preparation in that. And then last, as, as Solomon was sharing with the people that he had gathered together, he was preparing them in that because... Um, he explains to them, up until this moment, the Lord has lived in a cloud. And he says, but I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So he's letting the people know, this is, this is what we're doing here today. This is why we're here. Because we've built a home for God. And then second, as you look down, so Second Chronicles, let's look at, 6.10, it says, Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So Solomon now is telling them that it's because it's fulfilling the promise that God had for them through David, that David was going to build a house. And although David isn't the one to build the house, his son will. And Solomon's like, I am that son. That is why we are here today. We are making this great preparation. We are having this meeting before we pray and ask God to come into the temple. Preparation, intentionality. So that's, that's part of what would make God interested in dwelling among his people. Intentionality. Because we know that in a relationship with God, it doesn't happen without intentionality. How many times have you said personally, I'm going to pray about that, and then you never did? 
Or how many times were you like, yeah, I'm going to read my Bible tomorrow, but because you didn't make a time for it, you might have forgot. And then maybe you got into a habit of not doing it. It just takes intentionality. And that's what I think we're seeing here. So two, the second part, when we've made preparation, is to remember him. And I was thinking about like how people communicate with each other. And anybody here have relatives that live far away? Right? So if I call my dad, which I call my dad constantly, and I was to say, hello, how are you? His response would be, good. Which I might respond by asking, what are you doing today? Where he is probably going to respond, oh, not much. And this really is how these conversations happen. You guys have all had conversations like this, right? I'm not the only one. So however, thank you. I like that verbal affirmation. What I have learned is if I really want to engage my dad in conversation, I might start by saying, hey, dad, remember when Carrie and I were little and you drove into our driveway and there was a fire underneath the Cadillac? Do you remember how you ran into the kitchen and you grabbed the fire extinguisher and you ran and you slid under the car and you just sprayed it out? Okay, you don't get to decide what's heroic for me, okay? That was heroic for me, okay? Even if it sounds nuts. And that is a true story. But after I've engaged my father in a conversation like that, now he starts to become a little more interested because what I've done is I've technically bent his ear to hear my voice, right? And what he's now doing is he's going, yeah, I remember that day. That was really exciting. And this is what it was like. And then we might talk about what I was thinking when he did that. And then we might start talking about how he thinks I grew up really well and then we're probably going to at some point talk about God because we always talk about God somehow even though he doesn't believe in him. It's crazy, but we always talk about it. So you can pray for him. His name's Larry. I told him I was talking about him today. So you guys, that's, that's cool. So the idea is here is that I was catching the attention of my father and I gained his interest. And then he wanted to be very much so engaged in the conversation that I invited him into. And I think that's what we see from Solomon because what Solomon's saying is actually pretty incredible. Look at 2 Chronicles 6, 14 through 15. It says, The Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or earth, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. And when I cross-referenced it, what it was saying was actually really special. Check this out. Exodus fifteen eleven. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonders? Now look at Deuteronomy 7, 9. Now therefore that your God, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. This is Solomon remembering who God is in prayer. That's what he's doing. He's repeating back to God who God is. And I'm like, a lot of us, when we talk to people, we don't, we don't do that. Or, like, or maybe when we, when we pray, we don't always feel gravitating towards that because we're like, it's kind of corny, almost like we're sucking up to God, right? 
Or like we, we feel that if we use words like you are holy, you are majestic, you are wonderful, you are great, you brought me through this time in life, that it's just kind of weird to do that. But I think what's happening is Solomon is bending the ear of his father and God's probably on some level sitting there like, yup, you remember correctly, tell me more. Because he delights in the fact that we delight in him. Like our being and our, <laughs> our joy should be found in him completely. So when we're praying and we're talking to God and we're saying these things back to him and we're just like, this is who you are. This is what I remember that you've done. It just really increases this dependency. So remembering is going to draw God's ear to us, okay? So do we remember who God is when we pray? Do we acknowledge him in our prayers? I know a lot of times when I pray, especially at the end of the day, I'm probably going to list a few things that I'd like or that I'd like for someone to have happen. But I don't do that all the time. I think, you know, I'm very careful because when I, when I thought of this, I was like, man, it might sound like manipulation. But again, it's not because he delights in our praise of him. So preparations have been made. He has been remembered and proclaimed in front of everyone. That's what just happened, the remembering of him. And the next point that I want to invite you guys into um, of God that God won't refuse is what I call the house rules for family harmony. So when I said in the notes, what I said was playing by God's rules. But what I was thinking about with building a house was I was thinking that every house has house rules. And a lot of times we look at rules and we say, man, that's just a killjoy. I have something that I have to follow now that's very robotic. But really what rules are is a way for us to set clear boundaries in communication so that we can have better relationships. I was thinking, um, for example, recently I had a youth who brought tarot cards into the Port Orchard Coffee Oasis Youth Center. And I went up to this youth and I said, please do not play those cards here. They're not welcome here. And they said to me, well, Jake, I, I don't understand. I listen to your beliefs, but you can't listen to mine. And what I said to this youth, very simply, was that each house has a set of rules. When I go to your house, I will never tell you, nor will I criticize how you decide to live there. I said, however, when you are in our house, the Coffee Oasis, we have a set standard of rules. Because... If we abide by these rules, we're going to be a place that honors God and we will have great family harmony. And so I was thinking about that. And as the temple is being set up, that's really like it's going to be a place where God's glory dwells. But it's going to be a place that offers sacrifices and a place people pray to. And so Solomon here, as we're going to look just in a little bit. Um, is going to kind of take us through where our hearts should be in position with God. So what are some of the house rules that are familiar to us? Probably take shoes off at your door. Always use a towel when you get out of the pool or shower. Clean up after yourself. If you dirty a dish, clean it. If you see trash, pick it up. Curfew is 10 p.m., right? And I think in the same way, what we're seeing, like a father or a parent says that to their children, I think Solomon 
is agreeing to God's standards, but he's doing it in a question format that the people of Israel are going to understand so that they know how they can have right relationship with God. God's house rules for family, uh, what did I say? Family harmony. There you go. So, 2 Chronicles 2, 22-39. When a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple... Then hear from heaven and act, judge between your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing down on his own head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty and so establish his innocence. Okay, so here we go through a bunch of whens. So when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you and when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel And bring them back to the land you gave to them and their fathers. 26. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. And when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live. Send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of his afflictions and pains, and spreading out his hands toward the temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, forgive and deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of men so that they will fear you and walk in your ways all the time they live in the land you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he come and prays towards this temple, your outstretched, wait, toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all of your people of the earth may know your name and fear you. And do you, and what's that? As do you own people, as do your own people, Israel, and may know this house I have built bears your name. Lola actually deleted some of my notes yesterday, and I had to rewrite them from my memory, and I was like, dang it. Okay, but when I read that last part about like the foreigner, what I started to recall was kind of like Rahab and the Gibeonites. Like when they called out to God, didn't God accept them? Didn't they end up being a part of that? Even though the Gibeonites tricked Joshua, weren't they still able to be woodcutters in the house of God? When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward the city you have chosen in the temple that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in their land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray toward the land you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And when I was reading through that whole list, I was kind of just like really overwhelmed at first because I was like, man, there's a lot of whens. But if you notice they say when, they don't say if, 
So that's one reason that we can be thankful that God's a faithful people. Like, look back at verse 30. Forgive and deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of men. Look at verse 36, when they sin against you. Not if, it's when they sin against you. Why? Because there's no man that does not sin. No one can follow the letter of law. This list was not only to show Israel what it looks like to be in, light, in right relationship with God, but also to help show how Israel, to his, how Israel is to approach God in prayer when they are outside of his will. And even more important, to establish that God's house was a house that they could direct those prayers to. It's not about circumstance. It's involving a position, right? Because every single one pointed back to God. Are we learning to become more dependent? When we have found ourselves outside of God's will, are we going to humble ourselves like he tells us to? And are we going to submit to him? To ask his forgiveness? If we were to look in the book of Kings, we would find that neither David nor Solomon were perfect kings. David had an affair with Uriah the Hittite's wife, and Solomon had fallen into idol worship because of his mighty wives. David repented of his sin and asked God to forgive him. Isn't it amazing that Dave, David had still wanted to build a house for the Lord even after his sin? And that God would still... Honor that promise through his family line? It's because when David found himself outside of God's will, he asked God to forgive him and he was restored. So we aren't supposed to look at David and Solomon's life and say, well, that excuses us because God uses imperfect men. But we're supposed to look at Solomon's prayer and the pleas on behalf of the people of Israel as a model of how we're to be in relationship with God. That's ultimately what that is. And I know that sounds easy, because I know that when I hear that, so wait, all I have to do is ask for forgiveness and then restoration can happen? Like, that's it? Like, because I, in my head, especially when I'm walking and living my life, I try to add so many things to it. Like, I need to do this. Or maybe if I do this. Maybe if I don't think this way or do this thing for two weeks, I'm good. You know, or whatever it is. I mean, it could be anything like that. But I think that when I looked in scripture, I found that it really is, you seek God, you ask your forgiveness, you humble yourself, and he restores you. And I found that in the story of a king, King Rehoboam, that was also in the book of Second Chronicles. Rehoboam had just become king of Judah, and after Rehoboam's kingdom had been established, Rehoboam and his people turned away from the law of the Lord. They had become strong and proud. Their strength and pride led them to become completely unfaithful. King Shishak of Egypt came up and attacked King Rehoboam and some of his fortified cities and took some of them in the battle. However, God sends a prophet to Rehoboam. So 2 Chronicles 12, 5 through 7. Then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak and said to them, This is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me. I therefore now abandon you to Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is just. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but I will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. 
even further. Second Chronicles 12, 12. Because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him, and he was not totally destroyed. Indeed, there was some good in Judah. So God is going to stay true to this agreement to the house rules, right? And this had nothing to do with Rehoboam's strength or what he could do. It had to do with him realizing that he was not following God and that by humbling himself and asking God to forgive him, that God was going to restore him, and he does. So the fourth point that I wanted to make out this morning is an invitation. So once we've prepared, we've been intentional, and once we... Once we have remembered him and we have talked to him through that memory while we're praying and we've established that and while we've agreed to his house rules, we then send an invitation. Second Chronicles six forty-one through 43. Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. As Solomon's prayer is coming to a close, we feel this great sense of climax because it is time. This place has all preparations made for it. We agree to follow your standards and we are asking you to come and fulfill the promise that you made to David. We long for this kingdom and the line that will not end. And what anticipation must have filled the hearts of Israel as they were waiting during this moment? Will God accept our invitation? Will he answer? Is he finally going to come to rest in the temple? Well, God accepts the invitation. So the minute Solomon is done praying, literally the minute he is done praying, the altar erupts with fire and the glory of God in a thick cloud comes and takes residence over the temple and then comes and fills the entire temple that even the priests couldn't even go in to do work there because of the presence of God. God's presence had completely filled the entire temple. When the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces on the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God was pleased with the offering that they had made towards him. God accepts the prayer and comes and makes his home in the temple. Sacrifices are starting to be made. And there were a couple times that sacrifices are being made that you read in this, which I'm sure there was way more than a couple. But in both, one was that they had made so many sacrifices that they couldn't even keep up with the count of how many that were made which made me realize how serious this was for the people of Israel entering this pact with God, right? And then second, that, listen to this, there were 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Talk about a great barbecue that day, right? They said that there was so much, like, in these sacrifices that they couldn't even fit the entire thing on the altar, so these people were making beyond preparations because they were like, we only get one chance to do this. Let's get this right because we want him to come and take residence in this home. And God does two things, right? So he accepts 
the invitation. I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. So he's now repeating what Solomon had said in prayer. And pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. God had heard and honors the prayer of Solomon by choosing the temple as his dwelling. God has every intention of paying attention to his people. And if God's people continue, it is conditioned. It is conditional. That's what he said. He didn't say that he is just going to continue to do this. He said, if my people will turn from their evil, from their wickedness, they humble themselves and pray, call on my name, seek my face, then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's conditioned on their position that we talked about earlier. And what was kind of hard for me was like that verse 714 where it talks about healing their land because that is just so bizarre to me because I think of, a lot of times I'll think of salvation from an individual standpoint. I don't think of it group, if that makes sense, or the people of God. And so I have to work really hard when I pray to see it the way that God sees that, right? But for someone during the times of Second Chronicles, it might have meant that the land God had given them would prosper. That if anything had happened or there was something that was going to happen, that the minute that they turned to him, the plagues would end and that he would restore their land to them. And in today's world, it could be a restored relationship with God, but it also could literally be that we have peace in him, that we receive that same prosper, not a prosperity message, but that we will have what we need in the moment we need it always. And we will be content in that. Look at Jeremiah 25, 5. Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from old and forever. It's a guarantee of God's continued provision for those that are obedient and follow him. The second thing God does is that God makes a promise and gives a warning. As for you, if you walk before me as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. If I will make it a I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all people. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster upon them. So God ensures Solomon that if he obeys and follows God, that his royal throne would be established forever. We realize that doesn't happen because we talked about that already, especially through 1 Kings when we were saying, you know, we would just have to look back in order to realize the truth of that. God's acceptance of the invitation 
is conditional. It's completely conditional, and it's completely according to his standards. Why would God want to dwell among his people? When, he, when we have given him an invitation that he won't refuse, when we have been intentional, when we have remembered him, when we have agreed to position ourselves under his standards and to live by his house rules, we send out an invitation that he desires to accept. It is with great pleasure. And so have we done that? Have we made ourselves ready? Have we remembered him where he has gone and where he has walked with us? Do we agree that it's only under his conditions? Have we invited him after we have done all these things? All the hopes and promises we are to receive from God come within the context of our agreement to his standards and our relationship with him. If we have sinned or wronged him, when we turn to him, he will restore us. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what you have been through. I used to think when I was younger that my sin was like a vault that just kept stacking blocks and it was always there and it brought me great grief and shame. But what I've realized in aging is just like Israel, when they would fall down and they would go back to God, God would forgive them and they would be brought back in immediately. So I realized that like Jesus, right, when he went to the cross and as he stood, as he was upon that cross and he said, it is finished, that's exactly what happens the minute that we bring our sin to God. It has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And it is not remembered any longer. So will we commit to turning from wickedness and pursuing God wholeheartedly? Will we create a place that we can be intentional with God? So what do we do with this information? We prepare. Remember that we no longer have a temple, but we are a temple where Jesus resides. So we can prepare by making God our priority. By being intentional. By making intentional time to be with God. Two, we remember him. Lately, I've really been big into journaling. I've been journaling since March. And it's amazing just to kind of see where God has brought me and even some of the thoughts that I have and, and uh, what he's shown me in scripture. And once we see those and we start sharing them back, we just really start to enjoy this journey that God has us on, right? Three, when you find yourself outside of God's will, humble yourself and seek, seek God. So instead of continuing in that separation, go to him immediately because you want to be restored. I don't think there's anyone here that's like, man, I just want to be miserable or I want to continue in my descent and depravity. If any of you guys say that type of stuff, I would love to talk to you. Not, not because I'm trying to gain that, but because I really want to, I want to hear your side of the story. Um, four, extend God an invitation. For the person who has never experienced a relationship with God, this morning might be a morning where you invite Jesus to come and make residence in your heart. Just ask him. Tell him that you have walked in your own ways, but that you need a savior and ask him to sit on the throne of your lives. But for the person who's known God, but maybe feels distant, is there something there still that you have not asked God to forgive you for? Have you not confessed something? Allow your position to be turned to him, that he would forgive your sin and give you peace. Let's pray this morning. Father, we just thank you so much for not leaving us to ourselves. We thank you, God, that you show us so much good pattern in how Solomon and the people of Israel
prepared the temple and how they were remembering you. God, in, in the correct position before you. God, we ask that you would come and make your dwelling among us. God, that you would teach us how to live right before you and that we would walk in your ways. We ask that you would be with us. We pray again for the Fredericks, that you would keep your hands on them and oversee and watch over them. In your son's name, amen.